0: Before we open our scriptures this morning, I'd like to share with you three stories that I think in the end will help us to understand these scriptures better. And the first is about soldiers. Earlier this year, three naval rear admirals, Michael Miller, Terry Kraft, and David Pimpo, were uh, booted out of the Navy for a scandal that cost the United States $20 million dollars. Evidently, while they were deployed on the USS Ronald Reagan in 2006 and 2007, they passed classified information to a port owner in Malaysia, which allowed him to overbill the military $20 million for services like food, fuel, and garbage disposal. This port owner, whose name is Fat Frankie, according to court documents, Uh, also bribed our officers with over $500,000 in cash and luxury goods worth millions. Listen what three men will betray their country for. Spa treatments, alcohol, designer handbags, furniture, watches, ornamental swords. I can get behind that one. Um, (laughs) Handmade ship models and the services of prostitutes. In exchange... These Navy officers would reroute ships from the ports they were headed toward to this gangster's ports to boost his business. We expect our soldiers and certainly our officers to remain focused on their job, not running side businesses of any kind, especially not illegal businesses where they use our military weaponry as the muscle for a gangster's uh, venture. We expect our soldiers, in short, to suffer to suffer, for fam- uh, suffer separation from family, to suffer separation from lucrative business opportunities and career advancements during that time. Uh, they suffer these things in order to maintain focus on something very important, the protect- protection of lives. These three got caught up in a civilian business venture, not to mention an illegal business venture, and they put us at risk. Thankfully, they were caught, we believe, before any serious security breach took place. A story about soldiers. Here's a story about an athlete. In 1996, uh, bicyclist Lance Armstrong was diagnosed with testicular cancer that had spread to his stomach and brain. His uh, survival odds were placed at less than 50%. However, within three years, he began winning major cycling victories, and they dubbed him an American saint on a hero's journey. And then rumors began to surface of performance-enhancing drugs. Lance Armstrong insisted those substances were not for him. Nike made a big commercial about it. What am I on? He said, I'm on my bicycle six hours a day. What are you on? But in the end, it turned out he was guilty. Stripped of seven Tour de France titles... Barred from any uh, sport which is regulated by that drug enforcement agency. Forced to step away from his own charitable foundation. Uh, He's now being sued by his former sponsors for millions. Ultimately, Lance and all athletes are playing a game. His particular game happened to be a race on bicycles. And all games, by their very nature, have rules The merits of the game only count if you play by the rules of the game. The design of this particular game is that men must suffer on a bicycle for 21 days. Those who suffer the best within the rules come in first place and win the prize. Going outside the rules renders the whole contest, which was only a game in the first place, utterly meaningless, and so the prize is lost. Athletes. And a third story, this one about farmers. This one will have you laughing. Murig Raymond is president of the National Farming Union in the United Kingdom. Now, you're going to get a taste here for how British politicians can talk differently to their people than American politicians can. Because this uh, British politician has asked the British government to allow temporary work visas for students to come in from outside Europe to come and pick England's crops. Why do they need immigrants to come pick England's crops? Murig says, because UK citizens are too lazy to do it. There had been a huge outcry for him to use uh, British unemployed people in British agriculture. Murig says, we tried it. It didn't work. The British work ethic isn't what it should be. They lack discipline. They won't show up on time. Most don't last more than a few days. He says, if they don't start getting some immigrants by next year to come and work, British farmers are beginning to threaten not to go to the expense of planting anything, just to watch it all rot in the field unharvested. He says, in short, if someone doesn't work, we're all going to starve. No doubt harvesting is backbreaking labor. Getting up early in the morning for this or any kind of work is a form of suffering. But the result of that suffering is food. This is built into the fabric of of the universe, life and survival, that you suffer in the morning to eat in the evening. With those three stories, I think will help us understand what Paul is trying to say as we study 2 Timothy this summer. Second Timothy was written by a man named Paul. If you don't know, Paul was a Jewish rabbi. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. He began to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. So Paul struck out from Jerusalem and traveled the whole Roman Empire uh, tra- spreading the good news of Jesus. There's just a problem. When you're spreading the good news of Jesus in the Roman Empire, things like this happen. You, he runs around telling people, you don't need to worship idols made of silver and gold anymore. Well, that hurts the silver and gold idol-selling business. When you're running around telling people, sleeping with prostitutes is a sin and it's not God's design for sexuality and intimacy. When you say that in Rome, which has a government-supported temple sex trade... That's a problem. When you're telling people you should treat even slaves as your own brother and sister, eat at the table with them. In fact, he writes one letter where he implies maybe somebody ought to set their slave free. When you're saying that in Rome, a city where two thirds of all people are a slave of some kind, you upset slave owners. So Paul finds himself dragged into court and thrown into jail a lot in the New Testament. But by 2 Timothy, he must have really ticked off the wrong person this time because now he's facing the death sentence. It says uh, elsewhere in this uh, letter that he's got one more trial. His first one didn't go well. He's got one more and then he expects he'll be executed. Roman execution is beheading for Roman citizens. The church is fragmenting. Church leaders are afraid to be associated with Paul now. He's an official enemy of the state. They're embarrassed to be associated with someone who's on trial for treason and facing a beheading. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy, one of his last friends left in the world, to remind him that Jesus also suffered at the hands of the state. That Jesus told his followers, if you serve me long enough, you will also suffer suffering is part of the christian life but at the end of that suffering comes a great reward this letter we now call second timothy and we are now in chapter 2 timothy my dear son be strong through the grace god gives you in christ jesus you have heard me teach these things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. And hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Think about what I am saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. He tries to teach a lesson through soldiers and farmers and athletes that you suffer now and you receive a reward. And this is the way of the Christian life. So we're going to have to do some thinking this morning for how we would apply that to our life. Maybe it would be something like um, for some folks in a divorce, particularly when there's children. Thankfully, not all, but some divorces with children go this way. One parent takes on the role of the responsible one. They get two jobs. They help with the homework. They do the laundry. They handle all the discipline. They go to the school meetings. They are judge, jury, and executioner. The other parent becomes The fun one. They don't pay child support, but they buy the kid expensive video games. They promise them cars when they turn 16, though they rarely deliver. They take them to the amusement park. They feed them whatever they want to eat. They let them watch whatever they want to watch. They've even got time to go to the tanning bed a couple of times a week. And then they get mad when they aren't consulted about the important decisions. Not that they would have shown up to a meeting at the school had you invited them. This produces suffering. Because if you are the responsible one, and if you're listening to this, you probably are. Only the responsible one ever seems to be able to get off the couch and come to church. You suffer because the children tell you they hate you. They want to go live with the fun one. Not that the fun one wants anything to do with that, and you can't tell your kids that. That would crush them, and you're right not to tell them. In the kid's mind, the divorce must have all been your fault. Of course, out of decency, you're protecting the fun one's dark secret, as you should. Your children can't handle that information either. So you're left to gain the stress weight. You're the one whose health is failing. You're the one who snaps when you're exhausted and blows up at the kids, further reinforcing the image that you are the wicked parent. Now, while you're probably not perfect, and I don't want to want to insinuate that you are, I do want to tell you, you are Running, riding this race by the rules. And part of the rules of this game, if you don't know, is that when your kids turn 25, they're suddenly going to gain something like maturity. And in that maturity, they're going to look back and say, no, wait a minute. One parent fed me, and one really didn't. Nachos don't count. One parent educated me, and one didn't. One parent showed up, and one didn't. And the fun one suddenly becomes the abandoner, the irresponsible one, the parent you only talk about to your therapist. So stay the course. Now you might need to loosen up and learn to have some fun. Enjoyment is one of the four pillars of a relationship when we teach parenting classes here in the church. You might need to go to a counselor and seek help for the angry outbursts that are driven by your exhaustion and your constant one-way fight But keep looking out for your children's safety. Keep tending to their souls. You are a soldier on a mission and you cannot get caught up in the games that the fun one is trying to play. You are an athlete running the race by the rules. Now, I know the fun one has won seven Tour de France's with the kids, while they're adolescents and teenagers. But I'm telling you, all of those medals will be stripped away once they're old enough to see what's really been going on. And it's better yet, in that moment, if your kids are able to say, and all that time, my mom never told me anything bad about my dad other than that I should love him. And all that time, my dad never really said uh, anything bad about mom, even though she must have been putting him through hell. You don't need to throw the fun one under the bus. They're doing it to themselves. All the better if you don't participate. You are a farmer planting now and harvesting a crop of suffering. But from your kids' mid-twenties until the day they die, you will have their heart. They will feast at your table. Chapter 2, verse 1. Be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. If God is on your side, who can be against you? So don't turn to the ways of the distracted soldier or the cheating athlete or the lazy farmer. We have to find ways to apply that in our lives, so I, I pray the Spirit this morning is giving us all where could we suffer now and face it in exchange for the reward to come? Maybe you're depressed. You know, when you're depressed, you don't have the strength to get out of bed some mornings. You don't have the desire to do anything you used to love. You don't have the desire to do much of anything. You know there's help, or supposed to be, but you just don't feel right going after it. Is it going to be pills? Is it going to be therapy or counseling? Why should you need that? And what good could it do? And then come the darker temptations. Drugs. Alcohol, isolation, suicide. Wouldn't it be easier just to let it all crumble? While it's true that you are sick, and it's also true that you did not bring this on yourself, it is also true that you cannot give in to self-destruction. That cannot be the plan God has for you. Only the world believes that God has no purpose for you. Only a selfish person believes they can destroy themselves and not deeply hurt all the people who love them and depend on them. Only a lazy person stops working when the work gets hard. Soldiers, as a matter of fact, when they are hurt, call for a medic if that's what's needed. Whether you're sick in the body or, or sick in the mind, it's no different. I know our culture has a different stigma if your problem arises from above the neck. But as a biologist, I'm telling you, all the organs everywhere are all made of chemicals and water. And if they're not working right, there's a variety of ways to help. Call a medic if that's what it takes. Athletes, finish the race. Even if there's no hope of winning, you finish the race. Athletes, keep going. You don't get to collapse into your bed and let them fire you. You don't get to medicate your pain away with drugs and drink and loneliness. Farmers plant their crops, and they pray for rain, not knowing if it comes. For in the same way that you woke up one morning in this drought of depression, some other morning, maybe soon and maybe not soon, you'll wake up, and there may be a new rain in your life and something growing, but only if you kept planting, even in the drought. Be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. If God is on my side, who can be against me? I also want you to know that God will come out and run that hopeless race with you. Even if there is no hope of finishing first or even second to last, God will run that race with you. Derek Redmond was a young man who trained for the Olympics in the early 90s. He made it to the Olympics, started out the race, and at about the halfway point, ripped a hamstring, collapsed in agony. He thought, I came to the Olympics. I'm going to cross the finish line. (laughs) By the time he got enough resolve to stand up and do that, the race was over. But he starts running. His dad burst out onto the track to run with his son. He waves off officials. He pushes aside security guards. In this, I want you to see a picture of someone running a race. There's no hope of finishing, but you got to keep running. And the father comes out and runs it with you. In this wasteland where you are, there is a crack in the door ahead, and you can see light God is on our side who can be against us so don't turn the ways of the distracted soldier or the way of the cheating athlete or the way of the lazy farmer I don't know how this applies in your life I don't know where in your life you're suffering now and there's different paths to choose but one leads to a reward maybe it's for children this morning maybe there's a child here who's been born into a family who doesn't have the tools they need they love you As much as they're capable of love, but they just aren't healthy enough in their own heart and soul to take care of you. So you're damaged goods, kid. So what are you gonna do now? Are you gonna copy your parents' addiction? Are you gonna become a disciple of their selfishness? Are you gonna carry on this family tradition of abuse and neglect? Is this what is gonna happen to your kids someday? I know that you're angry. Let me maybe be the first person to tell you, you should be angry. You got a raw deal. Your parents were supposed to love you. They were supposed to guide you. They were supposed to care for you. They were supposed to carry your emotions when it was too much. Instead, they made you carry your own emotions, plus their emotions, plus the family dog's emotions. But you can survive this thing but you're going to need to follow a radical path and it is the path of Jesus Christ and it is a path of suffering. So they tell you, well, if you just do your homework, everything will be better around the house. So it's your fault. Well, Jesus would say, do your homework. I know it won't make any difference because what's going on is not about you but you take that excuse away. They say if you would just do your chores, they wouldn't call you those filthy names. So Jesus would say, do your chores. In fact, do all your chores. Do all the chores. I know, and he knows. It won't keep them from putting you down because it's about a sickness in them. Not that you're doing your chores, but you take that excuse away from them too. Jesus said, if someone forces you to walk a mile, because back in his day, if, you by, if a soldier got tired, he could just grab anyone off the street and say, hey, you carry my backpack. And you had to go one mile with them. You know, it was Roman generosity. They couldn't make you walk very far from your home. Jesus said, when they make you do that, carry it two miles, just to show who's got the problem, who's the oppressor. I know a young man who grew up in a no win home, he did all the chores. He did all the homework. He got straight A's, and it didn't make any difference. But one day he was able to say, I have done everything you asked of me. And it didn't change anything. But now I know in my heart that the problem is not inside of me. So he said, I'm going to move out now, and I'm going to begin my life knowing that I am none of the things you tried to tell me I was. Today, this young man tells me he is supremely happy. Be strong through the grace God gives you in Christ Jesus. If God is on our side, who can be against us? He will strengthen you. He will be the parent you did not have. He will teach you how to destroy the insults of others with kindness. Don't turn to the way of the distracted soldier or the cheating athlete or the lazy farmer. I don't know what in your life will apply from those three examples. Maybe it'll apply to someone who's single this morning. There is a blessed singleness. There are some people who are quite content to be single for a season or forever. Some are gifted by God with that. Don't let our culture tell you you're weird. It's it's a viable... Life in Christ. Paul was single and said, I wish you all had the strength to be like me. But there's also uh, single folks who aren't really very happy about it. And loneliness is a very special kind of suffering uh, because it relies so strongly on other people. First of all, another person who would be a good companion for you must exist. Then they have to exist on your continent. I was always afraid, there's someone perfect for me, but, you know, they live in the middle of Himalayas or something. Then they have to still be available, single themselves. Then you have to have met them and not done something stupid. And then they must also be interested in you. Over all of this, you have no control. This is a wasteland. If you're a Christian, you have to throw on an extra layer of complexity that this person must also be a follower of Jesus. This is all... Too much to bear. And I have known dozens and dozens of Christians who feel this waiting game is hopeless, and so they take a detour. I think they imagine they're just going to pull off the Christian highway for a time and get back on at the next exit. But somewhere on that outer road, they start going places to meet people that they never would have normally gone. They get sexually involved outside of marriage, they reach out to people who are just a little bit Christian, kind of. I mean, well, their grandma's Christian, sort of. They have a short, fiery, passionate courtship followed by a non-existent engagement. And when they get, try to get back into the flow of Christian traffic, they find their new spouse grabbing the wheel and stopping them. Because whatever it was they were looking for when they left the path of Jesus, what they found was the type of person who wouldn't have stayed with you unless you're willing to compromise your sexual morals. Someone who rushed you through to marriage before you even had the chance to notice, this person has no work ethic. This person lies a lot. This person has a borderline personality disorder. This is also someone who has very little use for God and even less for the church. Painfully, these people learn an awful lesson that there is in fact something worse than being alone. And so I'm saying to you that when God calls you to the suffering of waiting until marriage, to rent a house with someone, to have sex with someone, to go on a vacation with someone. He's saying, have a courtship that allows you to really get to know them, to test their character. Why? To see if they're good enough for you. This is how a father talks to his children. To see if they're good enough for you. You wouldn't say that about yourself, but uh, dads say this all the time. I say this to my daughter all the time. Not good enough for you. Does this person work? Does this person treat their parents well? Do they have any friends left? Are they very good friends? Don't associate, he says, with drunkards and fools and liars and schemers. Don't associate with people who weren't dedicated to their faith before they met you. He didn't say this to torture you. He said this to save you. God is on your side. He wants the best for you. Here's what he says. You're a prize. Take another look in the mirror. You're not desperate. You are a future king or queen over creation who will reign with Christ. The scriptures say angels tremble when they look at you because they don't quite understand all that God has given you. Anyone would be lucky to have you. So hold your chin up and put on patience for one more day. Even if you have to wait for years, you're only getting stronger and smarter and healthier every year. Your value just goes up and up and up. Verse 7, the Lord will help you understand all these things. Be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. There is a crack in the door through which you can see light. He's preparing you to be a good spouse. He's preparing a good spouse for you. Don't turn to the ways of the distracted soldier, the cheating athlete, or the lazy farmer. As for Timothy, who received this letter, I believe he did go to Rome. I believe he worked courageously for Christ. Also, as predicted, he did suffer. If you turn to a different book of the Bible, Hebrews, at the very end... Where they're just given some updates. The very second to last verse, uh, third to last verse, he says, "I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released from jail. He did suffer, but I believe he won the prize. He completed the mission. He harvested the crop. May we all follow in the footsteps of Timothy and the footsteps of Paul, and ultimately the footsteps of Jesus Himself. May we complete our mission." May we compete for the prize. May we join the feast at the harvest. If God is on my side, who can be against me? Uh, Let us bless one another with these words. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen and go in peace.